Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Joe Biden praises his relationship with Georgia Senator Herman Talmadge and finds himself in hot water. Roy Moore re-enters the Alabama Senate race despite warnings from the president not to run. And the Supreme Court prepares to issue rulings that could have a big impact here in Georgia. Those stories and more today on Political Rewind. good to have all of you with us for Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We have a lot to talk about, so let's get right to our panel for today. It's Friday, which means that the AJC's lead political writer, Jim Galloway, is with us. You read Jim on the Wednesday and Sunday, uh, at, on, in the paper on Wednesdays and Sundays, and he oversees uh, the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Hey, Jim, how are you? I'm fine. It's been a busy week. Busy week, and which means we have a lot that we're going to talk about uh, today. Donald Lowry is here. Donald Lowry, who spent how many years at Channel 11? 30. 30 years? No, Started when babe. you were two. <laughs> yes. Um, and now you're uh, the correspondent for GPB's The Lawmakers. That's right. Thank you for Glad being here. Glad to be here. And I am so glad to finally be able to say, well, not finally, <laughs> because we were able to say it once before. Whoa. Nakima Williams, State Senator Nakima Williams is here. She is now the chairwoman of the Democratic Party of the state of Georgia. And I kid you, Nakima, because I know you listen because you post about the All the time, the show, Bill, all the time. And your schedule is so busy <laughs> that it's hard to get you in here. I'm really happy that you're here. I'm Thank glad you for to be here. In. First African-American female chair of the Georgia State Party, right? Correct. You represent Atlanta, East Point, Union City, down College that College Park, South Fulton, yeah. All right, good to have you here. And across from you, uh, Eric Tannenblatt is back with us. He's a longtime Republican operative. He is the global government affairs uh, leader of Dentons, the world's largest law firm. Eric has worked with presidential candidates going back from George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, Mitt Romney. Uh, you've been all over the map, and, and you've... Uh, been one of the biggest bundlers in the Southeast, and we always are glad to have you here, Eric. Glad to be here. All right, let's get right to it. So, Jim, the controversy this week, of course, that a lot of people in politics are paying attention to is Joe Biden having made these off-the-cuff remarks, which are so typical of the way Joe Biden seems to do things, in which he said, in, in an effort to say that we are now lacking decorum and comity, on, on Capitol Hill, he tried to say that even when we w went back in the day, we were able to even get along with people like James O. Eastland of Mississippi, Herman Talmadge of Georgia, and he got a lot of pushback because, of course, those two senators are great examples of arch segregationists, and Biden's been under a lot of fire for it. Right. It, it, this is the, 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 this was a, an incident that had all these generational and geographic repercussions, because because you we have we have people of a certain age, like uh, Representative uh, Jim Clyburn of South Carolina, coming out and said, "Yes, over a over a series of decades." You were required to do business with people who didn't hold your same racial views on on race, uh, and and 
that was the reality, and you and you did it anyway. Uh, now we've had John Lewis come out. That's the big breaking news. If you don't mind, let me no, read. No, sure. we, we just now um, saw a tweet from a, uh, I think, a CBS reporter who talked to John Lewis and got video of him. We, we weren't able to turn the video around because this literally just came in. But here's what John Lewis said about this. Um, he said... Politicians and leaders should not give up on any human being. Here's what he told the reporter. I don't think the remarks are offensive. During the height of the civil rights movement, we worked with people and got to know people that were members of the Klan, people who opposed us, even people who beat us, arrested us, and jailed us. We never gave up on our fellow human beings. I would not give up on any human being. John Lewis now, uh, Nakima Williams, Coming out, as did Jim Clyburn, uh, one of the most respected African-American uh, congressmen on the Hill, supporting Joe Biden. But that doesn't end this controversy. It's been ongoing all week, and it's not going to go away soon, I don't think. I don't think it ends the controversy because I, I think, like Jim said, like there are generational divides in this. And while... Um, Congressman Lewis and Congressman Clyburn could have been doing this out of a, a way of survival, as we know that black people have had to do for forever. We've had to go along to get along so that we can get, like, the any inkling of freedom or rights that we could get. But we're in a different time now. And so I get being civil. I'm civil with colleagues in the Senate all the time. But that doesn't mean that when I leave that place or when I'm talking about this in different settings that I'm fantasizing about it or making it seem like it was this such a great thing. If you don't mind, let me ask you one question and then bring in the rest of the panel. Um, we know that Biden is leading in virtually every poll of Democratic nominees. And we also know that one of the reasons for his lead is he's had enormous support in the African-American community. Uh, is this, I, I, I assume you have not picked a candidate yet, I right? I have not picked a candidate. You're the chair of the party, so I guess you've got to be careful. I want every candidate to come to Georgia and talk to our voters. <laughs> but how does this make you feel about whether African-Americans should be supporting Joe Biden in light of this? Will it hurt him among African-American voters, do you imagine? I mean, I think some people um, that are going to see us like operating in a different time, we're a different Democratic Party. We're in a different space where we are looking to move forward and not just keep the status quo. And so some people see that as us trying to just stay like where we are now or just get back to where we were before Trump was elected. And that's not where we are in this Democratic Party. Did you find these remarks offensive? Um, I think for... What I heard was someone who was not willing to understand the impact of their words. And it's not always of what he meant, because I don't, do I think Joe Biden is racist? No. But it's not what he meant to say, it's what his impact was. And there are plenty of people who felt a really horrible impact by what he said. I listened to some remarks from our former governor here in Georgia getting dressed this morning, and it took me to a place that I don't want our state to go back to. Yeah. Eric, you're, um, you know, one of the things that's interesting about this, aside from the racial aspects of it, is that it, it's sort of one of these things that makes you feel like Joe Biden really is a very old man. I mean, he's talking, he's going back to the late 70s, talking about relationships with um, senators who are now long deceased. And, and if nothing, even if you strip it of the racial aspects, it, it feels like he is uh, contributing to this notion that he's yesterday's news. I, I, I agree. I, I'm one of those people that I'm not convinced Joe Biden will ultimately be the Democratic nominee. And I think this is an example of what I think is going to happen over the next several months. Elections are about the future. 
and Joe Biden is really not, he should be talking about the future. Instead, uh, he's behaving like the past. And I think we have a lot of younger candidates on the Democratic side that are running and they're gonna highlight these issues and these differences. And so um, I, I do uh, actually agree that, you know, we want all the candidates to come to Georgia because I think what that will also do is it will demonstrate to Georgia voters that the National Democratic Party is far more to the left than Georgia, than Georgia voters are. We'll see. <laughs> so Donna, let's the, the initial comments that Biden made were in a private fundraising setting. So we don't have, uh, to the best of my knowledge, nobody has audio or video of that, although who knows, it may come to light at some point. Uh, but we do have Joe Biden the next day talking to reporters and not apologizing for his comments. So let's look at that and then talk about it. The point I'm making is you don't have to agree. You don't have to like the people in terms of their views but you just simply make the case and you beat them. Yeah. So he just doesn't want to apologize. No, and uh, then he dug his, himself further into a hole when he talked about, <clears throat> excuse me, he was talking about um, Eastland actually saying, calling him um, a son and not a boy. And then that caused a whole lot more of a controversy that about it. And I think what, he, what he's trying to get to was civility. He just didn't say it in the right way. Like, yes, we want our country to be more civil. We see that that hasn't been happening lately. So I see that, but he, he just didn't do it in the right way. And we all know that we have to work with people who we don't always agree with, but we always find a way to do that. I think back to 1987 when, um, when we had up in Forsyth County, when we had Hosea Williams up there yeah. and he, we went through um, get, having rocks and bottles thrown at him when he marched the first time. The second week, I had to go up there and cover it and I interviewed a Ku Klux Klan man. You know, I, he was in the robe and the whole bit and we had a, a civil conversation, but you know, it was, I was shaking at the time. Yeah, I was but up there for I had that a too. conversation. <laughs> but you know, you, we, we all have to work with people that we don't always agree with. And I think that's the point. He just keeps digging in the wrong way when he says it. You know? It would have been nice for him to use a, 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 an example from say 2000. Yeah. Uh, rather than reaching reaching that far back, it, it, but but I, I will tell you, there, Bill, there's there is a regional aspect to this, sure, and and that is, I mean, uh, I mean, we've got that. Are, are you are you ready to tee up that that clip of? You want to show Herman yeah. Talmadge? Yeah. Are they ready? Can you put that? Can we put that uh, Herman Talmadge uh, video soundbite into the mix? Okay, we're going to look at this for a minute. Let me set it up just briefly. Jim, you um, mentioned it. This was. Talmadge, not Senator Talmadge, it was Governor Talmadge. Talmadge in, I think, around 1953 plus, maybe early 54. We were waiting for the Supreme Court decision on Brown v. Board of Education. This was a national political news show. And so, of course, reporters wanted to know, who were on the show, how Herman Talmadge would deal with Brown if it turned out the court demanded, which it did, that separate but equal was no longer the law of the land. So just to give you a taste of, of what a Herman Talmadge stood for, let's deal with this. Now the, people, the white people in the South and also the Negroes in the South want it left alone, just like it is. The, the inner agitators, white and colored, want to change it. 
Governor, this means, in effect, that your state would set up a private school system. I don't think there's any doubt but what my state would do so if they had to to maintain segregation. We intend to maintain separate schools in Georgia, one way or another, come what may. So that's the guy who later became a U.S. senator. Right, right. This, this is this is Herman Talmadge, the son of Gene Talmadge, right. who was even more of a, a virulent uh, racist, if you will. That was in 1953-54, we guess. He ran for U.S. Herman Talmadge ran for Senate in '56. A year before that, he wrote a book called "Segregation and You." All right. He spent the next ten years trying to buy back every copy he could so he could destroy it. Because he was on it, because the South was on a on a path that was the, the Democrats were in the midst of developing a biracial coalition uh, that would that would lead, that would that would uh, govern Georgia for 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 the next thirty years. Okay, so in '64, you know, Herman Talmadge wrote the Food Stamp Act. He created the food stamp system. Okay, in '66, he said, "I'm not going to stop federal uh, African American nominees for for federal judgeships." He 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 gradually moved. You know, I'm never. I'm not going to say he was a total convert because he never got there, but he was. But but there was the spectrum that everybody in the South was watching yeah. and were, were dealing and were dealing with. And you know, John Lewis was dealing with that spectrum. Andy Young was dealing with that spectrum. So uh, Nakima, I think that this story isn't going away because we keep uncovering uh, information about Biden and his earlier career. And that's one of the hardest things about this is that there are other examples of Biden in his earlier days. Uh, taking positions on issues that don't reflect the more progressive values, uh, apparently, of the Democratic Party today. So here's an example of that. When he was a freshman U.S. senator, he courted James O. Eastland, uh, who was a real leader of the Senate in those days, uh, vigorously. And one of the things he really courted him on was uh, Biden's effort to stop busing in his home state and in the Northeast. And he wrote a letter to James O. Eastland, which is in the Eastland papers. And here's one of the lines from that letter. He says, I want you to know I very much appreciate your help during this week's committee meeting in attempting to bring my anti-busing legislation to a vote. And that's only one of any number of letters in which Biden is obsequious in his efforts to uh, uh, bring Eastland into the fold with him. I mean, that's that's why we're having this primary conversation. That's why we have so many candidates on the Democratic side, because it is up to the voters to decide if this is something that they feel like is going to give us a candidate that is going to appeal to a part of America that um, that, frankly, I'm not looking to appeal to. Um, so we are we're in a very different space. And. I am looking forward to continuing this conversation to make sure that voters truly understand where we are moving as a Democratic Party, and that means leaving no one behind. In the party that I'm running here in Georgia, we center those most marginalized in every decision that we're making because I'm not willing to leave people behind for small gains. Eric, uh, you've uh, done your share of advice giving to candidates for office, including Paul Coverdale, who you worked with very closely when he was running for U.S. Senate. Biden goes into the first debate. He's in the debate next Thursday night, the second of the debates. He's going to get hammered on this. If you were a consultant on his team, what would you have to say to him about how he should be dealing with this? I, I think he needs to hit it head on and not wait to get uh, attacked by uh, others. And as I said before, this is the early part of the process. You know, a lot of times perceived front runners, people like to be with the perceived front runner. I'm sure 
you know, Vice President Biden's going to show a big number on the next disclosure report. And you're going to see a lot of people that are just, they want to be on the Biden bandwagon. But I got to tell you, having been involved in a lot of campaigns over the years, uh, including the last one when the front runner, you know, no one thought anyone could beat Jeb Bush. He had $100 million. You know, it is so early in the process. Yeah. We're in a, living in a different time. I was thinking as you were talking, Jim, if we had social media back then, you know, he can go try and buy up all those books. But yeah. can you imagine yeah. uh, right. how he would have been destroyed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. true. All right, well, we're going to watch how this plays out. I thought it was particularly interesting because there is a strong uh, Southern connection, Georgia connection, and we're going to watch how African-American voters especially continue to respond to uh, Joe Biden and how he deals with this situation moving forward. Eric, as long as the ball's in your court, let's keep it there. Uh, Roy Moore, you know a Republican <laughs> like you are. <laughs> Yesterday fought off everybody, including President Trump himself, who said, don't get into the Senate race. Roy, Judge Moore, and of course, Roy Moore, being who he is, jumped right in. What do you imagine his impact is going to be in a race where, we should remind listeners, uh, a Democrat won for the first time in generations in the state of Alabama, largely because Roy Moore was his opponent, it put Doug Moore in the Senate in a special election. Yeah, well, I think the impacts has potentially can be potentially uh, horrible <laughs> in in certain regards. I think what uh, what the, the voters of Alabama, the Republican voters, have to nominate uh, a different candidate, and you know there are others already in the race. There's rumors that Jeff Sessions may be looking at making a return. And I would hope Apparently that the that, president is encouraging him to do that. How ironic. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> stranger things have happened. Uh, nothing surprises me these, these days. However, I think if the, if the voter, Republican uh, primary voters in Alabama nominate another candidate, we're going to be fine. If Roy Moore were, you know, to win the nomination, which I personally hope is not the case, then it becomes a bigger problem because it becomes it, a very because for, control of the Senate could be at stake. At well, not, and not only that, you know, if you remember the race not too long ago in Missouri, where the Republican nominee made some horrific comments that you know helped to tarnish the Republican brand, and so you have to make sure that all your nominees and the Re Republican Senate Committee and Congressional Committee do a very good job coaching all of their nominees to stay away from some of these landmine, uh, you know, comments that they made. And, you know, it hurt our own Phil Gingry when he was running in, in the primary because he supported the guy from Missouri. Right. And, and to your, but to, to your, more to your point, uh, uh, this is going to be, 2020 is going to be a race where women, African-American and white, college-educated, uh, they're going to play a very, very big That's role. That's exactly right. You know, Donna, I, yeah. Jim is making a really important point. I don't think anybody really who's watching Alabama closely expects that Doug Jones, as a Democrat, has a great opportunity to get reelected to that seat. Except I don't think now. anybody thought he was going to win the first time, though. Well, yeah, except yeah. that we had, a, again, he was running as one individual, right. Roy Moore. And But to, to you, I get what you're saying, but Jim makes the point that we're also in a presidential election year. President Trump continues to be trailed by all of the stories about his misogynistic behavior toward women. If Roy Moore, given his history, which he denies repeatedly, 
uh, is in that race, I think Eric is right on, on target here. It looks bad for the entire party and, and for the president himself. Yeah, because women are at play more, and we're seeing that all over. We see more women running. We talk, and we're, I guess we're going to talk later about the 7th Congressional District, mostly women running on both sides. Um, so women are uh, in, in the game now. They're, they're thinking about what's going on, who they're electing, and they're paying attention and they're, they're, you know, in this Me Too movement, they're not going to be uh, happy with happening. It, it will be very interesting to see what uh, Governor Kay Ivey does uh, in Alabama. Alabama. Yeah. She could Republican have a big governor. influence in, in how the primary shakes out. You know, okay, but here's it. We're going to move on from and take a break in a moment. But, Jim, what, you know, um, uh, Eric points out that there are efforts to get Jeff Sessions in the race. I think clearly if he had the field to himself, he'd be a popular candidate and could be expected perhaps to win without a runoff. But if he gets into the race and none of the other Republicans who are in there, including one a very popular Republican um, member of the House, if they're all still in the race... That just helps Roy Moore get into a runoff. Yeah, you, you know, you've got a very splintered <laughs> field, and you've got you, you do look. I mean, he is. I mean, Roy Moore is pulling well under fifty percent, but the people who are with him are with him very strongly. Absolutely, they, absolutely. Nakima, you grew up in Alabama. I grew up in Alabama, and I tell you, in that race, um, I'm looking forward to Roy Moore being the Republican nominee. <laughs> <laughs> I have cousins who had not voted and didn't think that their vote mattered, and they showed up to vote for Doug Jones, and people are have awakened across the country, and they know that their votes matter, and they're showing back up. So I'm looking forward to taking on Roy Moore once again. <laughs> All right, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way, because we still have so much more ground to cover, um, but we'll We'll take a break and come back with more on Political Rewind. GPB's fiscal year ends on June 30th. At this critical time, we remind you that listener support makes all the programs you hear on GPB possible. Help us end the year strong and your contribution will be matched dollar for dollar. Thanks to a generous challenge from Pembroke Advanced Communications, Mariana Height, and Elizabeth Norman. Please go to gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. And thank you. It's been a week from rising tensions with Iran. Getting more dangerous by the day. To a shakeup at the Pentagon. He uh, presented me with a letter this morning. That was his, uh, that was his decision. To the start of the president's re-election campaign. Keep America great. I'm Ari Shapiro. We will discuss it all this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today here on GPB and gpbnews.org. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Let's talk very briefly, Jim, about the fact that the um, interesting, this federal lawsuit, that fair fight action has had moving through the court here in Georgia. They're now looking at something that really makes this more interesting as a national story as well as a Georgia story, and that's this notion that they believe one of the remedies the judge should apply to all of the problems they see with the way the vote turned out in 2018, the, the problems with the election, should in fact, the judge's remedy should be to reinstate the Voting Rights Act if nothing else, for the state of Georgia, it was nullified by the Supreme Court, what, 2013? 2013. 2013. Yeah. And you had, at that point, you had nine states who had to get every change in election law that they made 
pre-approved by the U.S. Justice Department. Most of them were in the South, not all, not all of them. And there were a few counties across the nation uh, that, that were also included. But yes, this this is this is kind of this, this was look 20, that 2013 decision was a big decision. It was a it was it was it, and it, it does it, you can see the impact in Georgia uh, when uh, these arguments that we had last year when when counties when one of 159 counties were changing polling places. Before 2013, those decisions had to be cleared Go by the Justice, Justice Department first. Nakima, weigh in on this. Um, so I work for an organization, Karen Action, who is also a part of this lawsuit. And I know that the doors that we knocked on, the voters that we talked to, were we talked to voters of color across the state in different areas. And like they were impacted by by um, voter suppression tactics in the state. And whether it was intentional or whether it was just malfeasance or whatever, voters were impacted. And so I am hopeful that as the case continues that we're able to prove that and make sure that when we tell someone that if they show up to the polls to vote, that their vote will be counted. So you, the idea of restoring the Voting Rights Act where everything has to be pre-cleared in terms of elections uh, is something that clearly you are in favor of. I'm in favor of this. I, I don't buy into the notion that we should have to wait until a voter is already harmed to bring a lawsuit to show that something was done. But if we can get in front of this, then we don't have to have people that are impacted and losing their actual right to cast their vote. Meanwhile, Stacey Abrams, it's, it almost feels like there's a coordinated effort here, although what? maybe... You think so? I was trying... Yes, I, I was trying to be... A little bit more innocent about this. She's going to be in, in Washington next sure. week testifying. What what committee is she? Is she judiciary? I don't remember it. It's a judiciary subcommittee. Thank you very much. And she's going to testify on just these issues and the restoration of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, Eric, at the same time, it's been interesting to see some of the more recent efforts by Republicans to uh, kind of push back on Stacey Abrams' ongoing claims that she's really the authentic governor of Georgia, not Brian Kemp. Do we have the clip from uh, President Trump that we can play? Tom, I'll tell you what, we'll, he's gonna try to get it up for us, but it, it, we've got, all right, why don't we watch, here's President Trump in his big official announcement speech the other night in Orlando, doesn't mention her by name, but I think most people know what he meant. This election is a verdict on whether we want to live in a country where the people who lose an election refuse to concede and spend the next two years trying to shred our Constitution and rip your country apart. I suspect we're going to hear more of that kind of talk from the president, and we might hear it more directly about Stacey Abrams herself from Republicans. Ironically, it was Democrats who, in the fall of 2016, were accusing Trump of, of a, an activity, saying he will never accept the results of this election. If Hillary Clinton wins, he will fight it uh, uh, to his dying day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, this is, this is all politics. I was in Washington earlier uh, this week, and... It was interesting when I was introduced to people and I told them I was from Georgia, how many people are now, they're actually starting to talk about Stacey's behavior, that she's a candidate that, you know, will, would not put this election in the, in, in the rearview mirror. And they see through 
her traveling around, whether it's to California or testifying. And, you know, enough is enough. And I think it's now time to govern. But no, 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 just if, if we can just kind of rewind the tape here a little bit. Uh, only a few years ago, uh, it was a Republican state legislature in Georgia who, sa who was saying, oh, we need to protect votes that are subject to being stolen, and so we need a voter ID law. We had the president that you, of, of the United States that you just saw after he was elected, after he was elected and sworn in, say, you know, somebody stole thir three million votes from me, and I'm going to establish a commission to find those those the, uh, those thieves. Uh, ultimately, it was it was it was it was dissolved. Yeah. So, I mean, we we we've had these arguments before. It, this is just a, a a a new new version from the from the Democratic side. But Republicans, we've seen make the same arg argument. I'm, I'm not. I'm not denying that. I'm talking about the fact that Stacey Abrams is taking this on and using this as another opportunity, just like she did when she went to, you know, Hollywood to meet with the film industry. You know, it's time for her to get off the stage. I know she may be campaigning to be the VP pick, and if that doesn't work, a cabinet member, if the Democrats are successful or running for governor, but enough is enough. And I think you need to look at what the Republicans have done not just the Republicans, the, we, have, we have a Democratic state senator here too. There were efforts made in the legislature to try and address some of these problems. So it's not as if people are ignoring some of the issues that were raised. Madam Chair, uh, it seems to me that Stacey Abrams has become a national figure and that her travel, I understand why Republicans are uh, irritated and upset oh, and by I, her. I guess they should be. Um, but but you, you, know, you have Karl Rove writing a while ago in the Wall Street Journal, a very, very prominent Republican uh, consultant. Since losing the 2018 Georgia governor's race, Stacey Abrams has given self-pity a bad name. She, uh, which is, a, you know, Karl Rove seeding the kind of conversation that Eric's hearing in Washington now. Um, how do you respond to what Eric says? So I haven't had those conversations in Washington. What, what I have had were conversations with Georgians right here on the ground. And what people, what voters have seen was someone willing to fight for their rights, stand up for their ability to cast their votes without any obstruction. And what I'm hearing is people are glad that we finally have somebody ready to fight back and push back against some of these tactics. Donna, you obviously haven't seen the polls, though. Stacey's, uh, you know, unfavorable ratings are going up here in Georgia. So it's not, if you so look at other I think it's always voters. when we have a governor in charge, the governor is going to be more favorable because he's the elected governor. I haven't heard Stacey say that she is the governor. What she had said was that had all of the votes been counted, then she would have been elected governor. But nobody's doubting that we have a governor in place. We have Governor Kemp. And I mean, Stacey agrees with that. I agree with that. This isn't and about Kemp and Stacey. I'm just saying that well, you made the comment that, you know, Georgia voters are you know, the people you're talking to, I'm saying there are other people in Georgia that are getting a little bit tired of the Stacey Abrams show. There are some people, but I think there, there's a lot to be said for someone willing to stand up and fight for what's right. I don't know that, I, you know, I think it's interesting. I hear both of you on this, and I do hear Eric's constituency, the Republicans <laughs> of Georgia, probably are really sick of Stacey Abrams because she's become so prominent. Whereas I don't think, I think it'd be hard to say that Democrats are 
you know, really getting tired of Stacey Abrams. Independence is what you need Well, to there's a good point. There's I mean, a question. And we had a 50-50 split in the election, so we know that our state is split right down the middle. And so what we're doing is we're going to keep fighting and keep making sure that people's voices are elevated right. who have not heard, been heard in this process. Real quickly, let me pick up on a point that Eric made, Donna. You covered the legislature right. this last session. He's right. A number of the problems that were identified by the Abrams folks, by Democrats in the state, were addressed in the General Assembly. There were efforts to clear up some of the problems, yes? Yeah, absolutely. And we, we saw, so it's not the message, message, it's the messenger, right? So it's Abrams you're talking about, but in terms of what she's talking about, I think a lot of people have an interest in finding out making sure that the voting process is better. And yes, there were steps made to make sure that we were purging people from the voting rolls on a regular basis, that we were making sure that, they, that, that people had the, uh, the time to uh, get their names right and, and stay on the mm -hmm. voting rolls and those kind of things. So those processes are in place. What's still uncertain, of course, is what we're going to have when these news machines come in. Yeah. Oh, that's going to be and, great. And, 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 but, and, and that is dead on. And that may be one reason why we're still seeing Stacey Abrams talking about this. Because that is going to be, until until that presidential primary on March 24th now, uh, the, the state of those ten, tens of thousands of voting machines is going to be a major okay. topic. Yeah. Jim, last, let's get in the last word on this subject. You know who's not tired of hearing Stacey Abrams talk about voter suppression in Georgia? Virtually all of the Democratic candidates running for president. They are all picking up on the Abrams message and talking about voter suppression in Georgia. Uh, Pete Buttigieg uh, said it was all racially motivated when he was here for a conference. Beto Joe Biden, Beto O'Rourke, they're all picking up on that message and using Georgia as the centerpiece of what they say is a national Republican effort to suppress votes. We'll see how far that plays. What do you think, Nikima? I mean, it's going to continue to elevate Georgia in the conversation, which I welcome. It's going to continue to, to energize people on the ground who might be connected to one candidate and not the party. So I'm happy for all of the attention, and I'm looking forward to electing someone. I think that Georgia is going to decide the nominee for the Democrat um, for the Democratic presidential candidate, and we're going to decide the president. Boy, spoken wow. like a true state party chair. Yeah, we're going to make it. I get it. Uh, Eric, you think it's a winning message? No, and, and, I, and as a Georgian, I don't like the fact that, you know, a lot of this talk, which I don't think, I, I think some of it, there, there, there's some truth to some of it, but I don't think it's to the extent that, you know, is being, uh, it, you know, talked about around the country and now the presidential candidates are, are talking about it. And I think it gives the state a black eye and it's not fair. We have said on this show repeatedly, Jim, that the national coverage of voter suppression has always been far more dramatic and accelerated than what we have seen on the ground here, which is not to say there have not been significant problems that, as you pointed out, could have been fixed if we still had a Voting Rights Act that required pre-clearance by the Justice Department. Right, look, just the, what we mentioned before, the, the very fact that in House Bill 316, this is the voting machine bill, the Republicans incorporated a lot of Stacey Abrams' objections yeah. Yeah. into the legislation to fix it. That was, that's, that's an acknowledgement that those problems were real. Right, and so, but, but, but it would be different if you're talking about, look at what George is doing to correct these problems 
this is what we did. Instead, we're hammering on issues that surfaced prior to the problems being fixed, and that's what I think gives the state a black eye. But what we heard after the election is that there weren't any problems, and we found that there were problems. And so, and our Republican-led legislature tried to fix some of those. So were we fixing problems that didn't exist? Regardless of whether, you know, however you interpret what was said and what wasn't said, the law is now the law. And so actually, The law is the law, and a federal were, judge has said that even though 316 passed and some of the provisions were adopted this by was the state, all the voting that there changes, is still yeah. enough, there are still enough problems to move forward in the yeah, law. Yeah, I mean, we still have a federal lawsuit right. that is playing out in court, and it's going to be fascinating to watch how that uh, turns out as we move forward. Let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way because we want to talk about the United States Supreme Court, and we have one local race I want to talk about before we get to that. So with all that still ahead, let's get our final break of the show out of the way. We'll be back. The countdown has begun. The end of GPB's fiscal year is almost here. Your support will help us wrap up the year on strong financial footing so we can continue to serve you in the months ahead. Your donation right now will be matched dollar for dollar thanks to a generous leadership gift from Pembroke Advanced Communications, Mariana Height and Elizabeth Norman. Please go to gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. And thank you. I'm Ira Flato. This week on Science Friday, we take a trip to Colorado for a look into the secrets of wildfire smoke and the people who chase it, plus a treasure hunt for Colorado's historic heirloom apple trees and the climate-threatened life of the pika. Never heard of one? You will on the next Science Friday from WNYC Studios. 3 o'clock this afternoon here on GPB and gpbnews.org. We've said on this show on a number of occasions that the 7th District Congressional race is likely to be one of the hottest congressional races, if not the hottest race in the country. That's the seat Republican Rob Woodall is uh, retiring from. It's the seat where Carolyn Bordeaux came very close to beating him in uh, the 2018 race. Carolyn Bordeaux back in the race. She won the endorsement the other day, uh, Jim, of the of a number of the women in the house the georgia house and, and uh it, despite the fact that one of their fellow members of this brenda state lopez, house yeah. brenda lopez is in that race and popular candidate but i want to just take a moment to share with our uh, audience a little bit of the introductory video and you'll hear the audio of this that was released this week by a new candidate in the race Nabila Islam, a first-generation American. She talks about the fact that her mother grew up in a tin hut in Bangladesh. And I'm sharing it because I wonder how the values that she's espousing in the video uh, will play in this election cycle. My name is Nabila Islam, and I believe we can build a country where people make enough to live in dignity, where health care is about care and not cost where neighbors don't hate neighbors, in a government of us, by us, once again works for us. You see, most wouldn't believe that a woman with a name like Nabila Islam, whose mother grew up in a tin hut with a mud floor 8,000 miles from where I stand today, could run for Congress and win. But I know this country is filled with people who every single day do what others say can't be done. And that's why I'm running for Congress. 
Madam Chair, those values and that message. Is 2020 an election cycle where you can go out, try to inspire people and win votes? I think it's absolutely this cycle. I think that's where we are as a country. I think that's where we are as a state and definitely where we are in the 7th Congressional District. And I, I don't know that some people are saying that she's an unknown candidate and doesn't have a chance, but I think she's going to get out there and work just like the other candidates are working in the 7th Congressional District. And I think it's anybody's race to win. Uh, it would, it, this is just kind of a picture-perfect example of how Gwinnett has changed. Yeah. And we should note that one of Nikima's colleagues in the Senate is also from Bangladesh, and yeah. he did win yeah. an election. Yep. Yes. Yep. And I'll, I'll just say, as just someone, as an observer watching it, th there was some money behind that yeah, video. there sure was. So I don't know if there's some resources <laughs> behind her. And the other thing that jumped out at me is she's a millennial or a younger person, and this is going to be uh, a year where I think you're going you're to see a lot of millennials turn out. Yeah, uh, Donna, we should say that uh, for all of you listening live on the radio right now, uh, we're we'll post a link to that so that you can watch it on video. If you're watching us on TV on Sunday morning, you'll have already seen it. I wonder about that kind of, I mean, it's a, it's a beautifully done video. I just wonder how far you get. She's got some issues in there, uh, but the rough and tumble of politics in, in 2020 could just uh, uh, take you down if you're not careful. It's true. And, but she seems like she's ready for it. It is going to be a crowded, um, it's going to be a, it, there's a lot of candidates in it. There's a crowded race. Uh, I got a call this week from John Eves, a former. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. We <laughs> should mention he's in there. chair of the Fulton County Commission, and he told me he's going to, he's moved from Fulton yes. County. He sure to has. Gwinnett County <laughs> and is running. Yeah, wants he's to run. in the race. So it's going to be very, a very crowded race. So she may be, have a hard time finding her voice, but it sounds like she's up to the challenge. Let, she let really me, Millennials have so much, you know, humph, you know, they, they really think they can do it, right? Nikima, Nikima, let me ask you this. I mean, when you see somebody with talent like that, and, and, and clearly she's, she's very good in front of the camera and she's done a lot of thinking on, on issues. I mean, is there something in you that says, run for a house seat? Run for a state so senate I, seat. Uh, uh, Nabil is not you know, new just to, to build politics. A, build that bench a little bit deeper. She's not new to politics and had a lot of these conversations before she announced. Um, I've known her for years. We came up together through the Young Democrats of Georgia. Mm -hmm. um, so I've known her for a long time. She um, worked on Hillary Clinton's campaign as doing fundraising in the southern region. So there, you might be onto something about that money thing. <laughs> um, so she has some contacts, and this isn't this isn't her first time um, walking into politics. So she didn't just enter this race um, thinking, I want to be a member oh, of Congress, and I don't know anything else about this. Galloway, we have such a busy year plus ahead of us. <laughs> never going to run out of things to talk about on our show. And the bad part is everybody's getting younger. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. Uh, no, you're getting older. All right. <laughs> we are down to the final, basically, week and a half of the Supreme Court's current session. They're going to be out of there by uh, beginning of July or so. And they still have some really important decisions, or we think they're gonna hand down some decisions in very important cases that will have an impact on Georgia. Jim, one of them is the question of, of whether or not the Census Bureau can put a citizenship question on the 2020 Census. It will essentially ask something very simple. Are you a citizen of the United States? The Justice Department, we've had a very sordid history on this. Uh, the Justice Department went along with Wilbur Ross, 
the Commerce Secretary, apparently wanted this question on the census, went to the Justice Department and said, we think you need to put this on there to protect voting rights. It got very convoluted, and the court was asked to rule on whether this question ought to be on there now. Why, why should there be... Uh, what are the implications of having the census question? Okay, that, that argument has been... It has gone before the Supreme Court. The justices are, are, are considering it. Since that argument yep. was made, we have gotten new information. We've we've gotten uh, we've gotten to know the the contents of some hard drives and thumb drives left by the late Tom Hoffeller, who was a genius at dealing with how to gerrymander Republicans and, and how to how to how to how to manipulate how to choose the voters who will choose members of com Congress and how to choose the members of the state legislatures who will draw the, the maps to do that and uh, it's 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 very clear that he, you know he is uh, what you have to remember about Hoffeller he was the fellow he was the fellow who back in in, in the 1990s and in 2000s who realized that controlling control of Congress was the key to controlling Congress was was to control the state legislatures if you if you elect enough Republican controlled state legislatures they can draw the line the congressional lines to benefit Republicans in the Congress and that's what's happened so the whole feller whole feller passed away in 2015 his estranged daughter brought these uh, record this study to light whole feller apparently gave this study he gave it to the Trump transition team initially and said, here's how you can assure even more concentrated Republican control of legislative districts and of Congress the Supreme Court's been asked to hold off on a decision until they're given a chance to study this. There's no certainty they're going to do that, although a federal judge in New York has said it's clear that Hofeller's study really throws this whole thing out of whack. Your right. thoughts? I mean, an Obama-appointed judge, uh, that report is not part of what's before the Supreme Court. That's exactly Court. right. And so this is being turned into those that would like to see the question not on there into a political issue. And unfortunately, we live in such a polarized political time that no matter what you, where you stand on that particular issue, you're going to highlight it. But, and that's what's happening. But, but what the, the key to this is, and this gets, we're getting a little bit into the weeds here. The, the idea is what you, by including the census question, you're creating a database for the people who are who are going to be drawing the new lines, uh, new new uh, uh, representative lines in twenty twenty one, you're giving them a database, and and states, many states will be able to apportion uh, county commission lines, school district lines, city council lines, according to say. Uh, the number of U.S. citizens in a district rather than the number of total population. Right. And, so there's that. The, the largest issue that many people are concerned about, Democrats uh, particularly, is that when you put a citizenship question on the census, you're going to scare off any number, particularly of Hispanics, who are worried about whether or not they're going to be targeted by uh, ICE, even if they're here legally and that you might have an undercount. And we have new data from the Census Bureau just this week, which tells us the P Hispanic population of Georgia is growing rapidly, 
And if some of those people don't want to answer the census because they're afraid, it's going to undercount our people. It's going to lead to less government funding. It's going to change representation. I mean, yes. I think that's something we should all be concerned about, whether we're Democrats or Republican. When we think about our school funding, when we think about funding for roads, when we think about any federal funding that is linked to the number of people that live in our state, when we think about even gaining a new congressional seat, it's based on the number of people that are responding to our census. And we want more, we should want more people to be engaged and answer the census questions yeah, than but fewer. But the question is not asking, it's asking whether you are a citizen. It's not asking whether you are illegal. I mean, so if you answer no, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're illegal in the country. I mean, I think the, the, the Census Bureau itself has projected that this will lead to like a six plus percent less likely uh, response from people in Hispanic communities across the country. So I think, doesn't Nikima make a point that whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you, the census helps you with federal money? And it does give your state potentially more power it, by adding a congressional seat? Well, it does, it, it does help you dictate that, and the numbers will show, hopefully, that Georgia will get one, if not two, new congressional seats. But, you know, keep in mind, too, that this original suit, my understanding is, was brought by these NGOs who are all, uh, you know, working with these groups dealing with, many of them dealing with some of these uh, non-citizens and even some illegals. So they have a vested interest in, you know, getting federal grants that go to these organizations. I think, unfortunately, this has become, and, and maybe on both sides, a too, too political. It's terribly political. By the way, I said 6%. I think what I should have said is it's the Census Bureau said an undercount of as many as 6 million right. people. So yeah, that, I want to correct yeah, that's that. That's a lot less. Yeah, of yeah. course that's a lot And less. there's a reason it hasn't been on the, it hasn't been on the census since 1950 because of problems. Yeah, it hasn't been on the yearly right. uh, census reports that, yeah. you know, that go out. All right. I mean, we're going to watch this uh, and see how the court rules on this. And the big question will be, I think, is the court willing to put this off and say, we don't want to have to rule on this this year. We'd rather look at what the Hofeller documents show us and come back at another point and deal with this. And that raises the other issue that has enormous potential to have an impact on Georgia. And that's that the court has yet to rule on whether it is constitutional, legal for a state to do redistricting on partisan lines. We know it's illegal, Nakima, to draw lines based on race. But the court has really wrestled with whether or not it should be okay or not to draw lines based on Republican districts, Democratic districts, and everybody's waiting for that ruling. I mean, I think when we live in a state like we have here in Georgia, where we know that you can say that you're not doing it by race, but you know primarily, take my dis my district, for example, which is should be a picture child for gerrymandering in the, a dictionary. But if you look at, like, how we vote around racial lines based on partisan lines, then you can say that you're not doing it based on race, but when you're looking at the way that, that voters um, behave, and it, I mean, it still comes down to it's based on race. Jim, uh, Linda Greenhouse, who is, I've been observing the Supreme Court for the New York Times for many years, and is really an expert on their uh, behavior. She proposes that she's not sure they're going to answer this at all, that they might kick this back and wait until after the 2020 elections because they don't want to put such 
in either the citizenship question, the, the last week uh, when they deferred on the Oregon baker, the wedding cake mm -hmm. decision, she thinks that they might be aware of the political implications of some of these more dramatic decisions and put them off entirely. Look, I mean, you've got lots of reports out there about John Roberts, the Chief Justice, very concerned about how the Supreme Court is being portrayed and the fact that it's that, well, I mean, look, on the question of abortion, uh, that you've got this huge push in red states, including Georgia, to get a case before these justices. Now that now that uh, Trump has, has has been able to put two two of his own appointments on that and on that court. So so the, yeah, you've got a chief justice who's very very worried about uh, becoming uh, an arm, being perceived as an arm of the Republican Party. So Eric, let's talk to though. So we'll see. Maybe the court rules on partisan gerrymandering. Maybe they they don't. They they could very well say, look, we have never felt that we should be involved in the part, the political battle, the partisan battle of how lines are drawn. But we do want to make the point that while Republicans have used gerrymandering very, very effectively for the last decade, Democrats were pretty good at it here in Georgia themselves. Oh, yeah. Roy Barnes and his chief of staff, Bobby Kahn, really knew how to uh, draw maps that favored Democrats back in the late 90s. Absolutely. In fact, I was one of the ones who lived in a multi-member district where I had multiple yeah. legislators. <laughs> and, that was a way to and, and, and we should say this, the, 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 the case before the Supreme Court the, on, on the partisan gerrymandering, it has it has two examples in front of it. One is, one is North Carolina, Maryland. one is North right. Carolina drawn by Republicans, uh, the other is Maryland right. drawn by Democrats. Thank you. I'm glad you pointed that out. I think this goes back to the whole notion that elected officials should not choose their voters. The voters should choose their elected officials, regardless of the party. Would you favor an independent commission I of would. some sort? I tried to get um, a study committee passed during the Senate this year, and one of my colleagues in leadership in the opposite party told me to wait until I was in charge, and then I could um, <laughs> I could do my own study committee on a nonpartisan committee. And I think there were some committee. Republicans back in the Roy Barnes days that called for uh, an independent. <laughs> yeah, I so I'm and I told him that whether I was in charge or not, I still feel the same way because right is right and wrong is wrong. So we're running out of time, but uh, given that we we have you here. Uh, Madam Chair, let, let, if you don't mind, just a couple of quick questions and everybody else can jump in on this too. Um, what do you think the chances are? You, what do you need? 13, 14 seats in the House for Democrats to 16. take? 16. Oh, I'm sorry, it's that many. We have 75 out of 180 how right close now. Do we you need believe, 91. How, how close do you believe you can get? Um, we have our target set on taking back the House for 2020. We've started a, um, a new program, the 91 Club, within the Democratic Party of Georgia, and we're laser-focused on taking back the House, and I think it's going to happen. But on the other hand, you've got some conservative organizations out there, um, anti-choice, anti-abortion organizations who are going to be out there fighting hard to get rid of Democrats who voted against the uh, abortion bill, uh, Bob Trammell being a big example of that. They're trying to get rid of the minority leader of the House because he didn't support HB 381. So those forces will be working hard too, yes. I mean, I wouldn't expect anything less because we're definite, we definitely have our sights set on some people that we feel like should have voted with their constituents in their districts as well. So um, I expect them to come after some of our members because we're definitely coming after some of theirs. All right. Um, do you think they've got a chance? 
Look, there's no doubt that the demographics in this state are changing, and there was a lot of progress made this last election cycle, and it's going to be up to the Republican Party, and as I've said before on this show, <laughs> that we have to recognize that we, in order to stay in the majority, have to be accepting of people that may not necessarily agree with us 100%. And so we have to be a broad tent, broad-based party if we want to maintain the majority. You have to, you have to, the, the, the Republican Party has to start thinking about November rather than the May primary. Uh, uh, real quick. Done that yet. I, I'm going to give you 10, 15 seconds on this because you pointed out before the show to me that this new data from the Census Bureau, which they parcel out over a period of years, Forsyth County is becoming a diverse county. Uh, from 2010 to 2018, <laughs> Forsyth has moved from 19% minority to 28% minority. That's, that's, that's the Republican safe place to keep the 7th District Congressional. And that's the reason that Eric Tannenblatt says the Republican Party had better figure out a way to start reaching out to a more diverse... And I, uh, and I, think, I think Governor Kemp is demonstrating that with his recent appointments and some of the things that he's doing. So I think we're, we're heading in the right direction. Eric Tannenblatt, you got the last word on this show, <laughs> even with the Democratic Party chairman sitting hey. across from you. That is, it. Have to come that, back. that is it. That is it for us uh, for today. Thanks to our panelists for being here and thanks uh, to all of you out there in our audience. See you again Monday at 2.